listening to the Rude Horror Podcast with your host, Marcus Rude. The one that I officially worked on with him um, was Fortress, which, you know, Fortress, you don't immediately think of Fortress as like, you know, you say Fortress and people are like, was that a Stuart Gordon film? And then, yeah, Fortress was a Stuart Gordon film. And again, kind of like Robot Jocks, I think it was sort of outside of his outside of his expertise. But I think that Fortress is much more successful than Robot Jocks. And I think a lot of people liked Fortress. And Fortress seems like maybe it's got a little bit of a cult following. Fortress feels like um, I think people really like the idea. I think people really like Christopher Lambert. Um, mm-hmm. And my involvement on on Fortress was working on miniatures. So the entire, the giant fortress model, I say the giant fortress model, the model of the fortress itself, the big thing that went down underground, um, we built that. It was me and a group of like 10 guys. And the fortress model itself was probably 30 feet deep and about 10 feet in diameter. And it was huge. And it was basically like a steel round cage with all these layers of the different floors of the the prison. And it was huge. And we shot it with motion control and we shot it in a smoke environment. And it was so big that we turned it on its side. We rotated it on its side and shot it with the camera moving up and down sideways because to try and like stand it upright and lower the camera down from the top would have been almost impossible. So, um, there was a lot of miniature work on that, a lot of time spent building that. And that was cool because we got all this reference footage. So before the movie even came out, they were sending us scenes from the movie and giving us production photos. So they'd give us production photos of the different layers of the, the prison, the doorways, the, the splat guns and all that stuff. And we then got to create that stuff in miniature. So I think the movie ties together really well between the effects and the live action because they were really good about sort of showing us what everything was and giving us the information we needed to to build all those models and do all those effect scenes. Um, and then I didn't get to meet Stuart Gordon on that show, but I want to say it was either The Giver, which Brian Usna produced, mm-hmm. or it was Necronomicon, which Stuart Gordon didn't work on, but Brian Usna did. And so Stuart Gordon would visit and come and say hi. And that was one of the cool things about Usna in general was that, and, and the whole Stuart Gordon Usna camp is that people would come by. Like you could be working on the miniature and somebody would, from production would come by. Or we were working on Giver and like Usna would stop by and he'd bring Jeffrey Combs with him because Jeffrey Combs was in the Giver. So you'd be working in the studio, working on makeup effects, and here'd come Brian Usna with, with Jeffrey Combs. And, you know, you could sit and chat with Jeffrey Combs for a while. And Jeffrey Combs was an easy to talk to, easy to hang out with guy to begin with. But then to see him in that sort of casual setting is just a lot of fun. Or, you know, you'd be on a set and Barbara Crampton would walk in just to say hi and visit. And, and that was one of the very cool things. But one day we were working at Screaming Mad George's studio and again, it wasn't a Stuart Gordon project, but Brian Usna brought Stuart Gordon in to see what we were doing and just hung out for a while and talked and chatted. And, you know, Brian Usna and Stuart Gordon both, they 
this could sound kind of odd. Sophisticated is not the right word, but they could be such professional guys. Like they could walk in with suit jackets on and their hair perfectly quaffed and clean shaven and tan and very healthy looking. So they, they, were, they were these very professional guys who could go in and ask for a million dollars to make a movie. But then they could come and hang out with you in the makeup effects shop and be thrilled by what you were doing and ask questions about what you were working on. They weren't then afraid to take the jackets off and get down in the muck and the makeup with you and have fun. So, And I have a lot of respect for that because I can't do that. I, I hate putting on a sport coat and going into a professional meeting and sucking up to people for money. Brian Usna and Stuart Gordon, those guys could go in and – schmooze and do professionally what it took to get their films financed and then come home and take off the sport coats and throw caution to the wind and have fun. And, and I have a lot of respect for that. So uh, Stuart Gordon just always seemed like he was having fun and enjoying everything and smiling and happy and enthusiastic. And so to imagine him, you know, as just passing away suddenly with health issues is just that's not the guy I remember the guy I remember was vital and healthy and enthusiastic and you know had a shiny healthy face and a big smile and a twinkle in his eyes that's the guy I remember um and Brian Usna too youthful and energetic and you know this handsome square-jawed guy who just blow in with a lot of charisma and so so yeah to hear that Stuart Gordon died I know we're taking this full circle to this to hear Stuart Gordon my last images of Stuart Gordon in my head I was like there's no way that guy could die there's no way that guy could die but you know unfortunately we all get old and yeah so it's, it's yeah. very sad though it's very shocking it's very shocking and time goes by you know and I hadn't seen Stuart Gordon in a lot of years so I, I don't know what he was like towards the end it's just you know you see these people and they're so young and vital and striking and then you know boom time passes um, so yeah, very, to reiterate again, it's very sad and very sort of shocking that this, that this happened. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it really is sad. like, you know, I, I didn't know the guy, but you know, I loved the movies that, that he made and had yeah. worked on and, you know, and I, you know, I don't know the guy, but this is one of those things like, you know, like it kind of hit me like, holy shit, man. Like, you know, Stuart Gore, you know, I, you know, I, uh, it's, it's it's almost like uh you know he you don't think that these guys are gonna die you, no. you know like yeah. it's just well like, their, work, their work their work becomes so much bigger than them you say reanimator is probably like international currency you could probably go to a country where you don't speak language you don't speak the language but you can maybe be talking to film fans in another country. You go to Italy or Japan or something, and you say reanimator, reanimator. It's like when they talk about, um, like, Scooby-Doo is international currency. Somebody who worked on Scooby-Doo was talking about how you could be in a country in the middle of Africa somewhere and say Scooby and Shaggy, and they would go, Scooby, Shaggy? Like, they knew who you were talking about. You couldn't speak the language. You don't even know how they saw something on television but you could go anywhere in the world and say Shaggy and Scooby-Doo and people would be like, oh, I know what you're talking about. It was international currency. I think that's what Reanimator was. I think you could go somewhere in the middle of nowhere where you didn't speak their language and you could say Reanimator and people would be like, Reanimator? Like, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. And it's, mm -hmm. yeah, it's, it's not quite as big as like saying Star Wars or Batman or Superman or something, but it's up there. Yeah, I think you could definitely sit down with 
people from five or 10 different countries and hold up, you know, the image of Jeffrey Combs injecting serum into the back of, you know, David Gale's neck. Mm -hmm. And uh, people would be like, oh, reanimator. Oh, yes. You know, yeah, they're going to know what you're talking about. So, yeah, these films take on a life that's bigger and broader and more well-known than the, the filmmakers themselves. And, and that's, that's great. I mean, I strive someday to have a project or create something that goes beyond me. And that's any filmmaker who's done that. That's really an achievement. That's really something that's amazing. So, so they enter into sort of the social consciousness but then you sort of forget, oh, yeah, these are real people that like they live and they age and they grow old and they die. And, um, you know, it's like when when David Bowie died, that was a huge jolt to my system. When mm-hmm. Alan Rickman, who played Hans Gruber in Die Hard, when Alan mm-hmm. Rickman died, it was like, oh, my God, Hans Gruber, Hans Gruber can't die. He's the greatest bad guy ever. Mm-hmm. So I stop and think about, you know, what's going to be horrible for a lot of people, but for people of my age is like when guys like Spielberg and George Lucas and like Clint Eastwood and guys like that start dying off. That's boy. You talk about the end of an era. Um, yeah, it, yeah that's it, it's, such a huge blow. Yeah, that's it's really going to be sad. That's going to be that's going to be a hard that's going to be a hard thing to take. It really is. Mm. Well, hopefully those guys will live long, healthy lives. But, you know, it's inevitable. We all will pass. Yeah. Uh, and I, you know. And some of these guys are older than you think. I think Clint Eastwood is in his upper 80s now. I want to say he's like 89 years old or something. And uh, I, on the flip side of that, you know, some of these guys die like Ray Harrahausen. I think Ray Harrahausen was 93 when he passed away. He'd been retired for like 20 years or something. And he's touring the world, screening his movies and talking about stop motion animation. And then, you know, he died quietly in his home at 93 years of age. And people are like, oh, no, oh, no. And I'm like, you know, he was 93. He'd been retired mm-hmm. for 20 years. Well done. So, you know, if, if Clint Eastwood quietly retires and he lives another five or 10 years and he dies well into his 90s, I'm going to be sad. But by the same token, it's not going to be. It'll be a very sad day. It won't be a huge shock. Stuart Gordon was a shock. Stuart Gordon was too young to die, in my opinion. So, you know, I I think that's what gets us. Like David Bowie dying in his 60s. That was just weird. Like, why did that happen? And I think Mm -hmm. that's, yeah, when somebody dies at an advance, like when Betty White dies, it'll be a sad day. It won't be a gigantic shock. She's like 96 or 97 years old. She's been around an awfully long time. Mm-hmm. Sad to see her go, but you know, won't won't be a huge gigantic shock if one day they say Betty White has died. But it'll be sad, but not surprising. So, anyway. right, you know, yeah. us us as a species, we try to strive to live up to ninety, hundred years old. Yeah, <laughs> it's a good target. It's a good target to shoot for. Yeah. Um, yeah. Unlike, uh, I don't know if you see Midsummer. I have but, not. I've heard a lot about it. Oh, I've heard a lot about it. Oh, I was going to say, unlike them, they actually, <laughs> I think they, they, they say that their, their life cycle ends at like, like 70 or something like that. Okay. And then like, you know, I don't want to spoil anything. I know a lot about the movie just because I've read a lot about it. So 
I don't know if you want to be careful to spoil it for viewers or not, but I'll be okay. I'll be okay. Yeah, I'll I'll just say you know it. I'm sure everyone kind of knows that it's more of like a cult kind of movie. Yes. So they all, you know, they all kind of follow the rules within this cult. Well, the end of their, I'll just say the end of their life cycle is like 70. And then I'll just leave it as that <laughs> until you okay. watch the movie and okay. you'll understand what I'm talking about. Right. Like it, you know, it's crazy that, uh, I don't know where I'm going with this. I guess like, you know, we strive to live to be like 90, 100. Like, you know, that movie in like cults, you know, cults have different uh, views on life and stuff like that. So right. they say, you know, the cult, they're into their life cycle is 70. And then, you know, we see that the, the conclusion of uh, what happens once you hit that, <laughs> once you hit right. to that, uh, that point, it's uh, right. mind boggling. Sure. <laughs> Yeah. Now, I barely remember Castle Freak. I barely remember Castle Freak. Um, I know Jeffrey Combs was back. I know Barbara Crampton was back. Do you remember Castle Freak very well? Uh, yes, yes. Okay. Uh, in, in Lurking Fear kind of reminds me of Castle Freak a little bit. Okay. So sometimes I'll get those movies mixed up. But... <laughs> Well, there's but, a reason for that, but yeah, go ahead, go ahead. But I mean, uh, one one way I can tell the difference is uh, Jeffrey Combs has a beard in Lurking Fear, <laughs> <laughs> and then you know he does it in uh, Castle Free. Now, the interesting thing is you mentioned Lurking Fear, which I worked on Lurking Fear, um, <laughs> and you got. Here's a great Charlie Band story. Um, and I've never met the guy. I've never I've met all the other guys. I've never met Charlie Band. I've only dealt with Charlie Band peripherally because I work at these special effects companies and Charlie's on the phone or Charlie's giving orders or Charlie's had a meeting with somebody else and then that person comes and tells us what to do. So I've never dealt directly with Charlie. But we got hired. There's a guy named David Sharp and David Sharp his company got hired to create a trailer for the lurking fear. And the idea was that Charlie Bannon was going to take this trailer and take it to like the film markets. And he was going to pre-sell the movie. Cause that's, that's what a lot of those people did. Charlie Bannon did a lot of that, but everybody did that. You'd go to like the con film festival and you'd take a pitch trailer with you and you'd say, Hey, I'm pre-selling this movie. I'm going to do this movie called lurking fear. Look at my cool trailer. Well, he hired David Sharp, and then David Sharp put a crew of people together, and we created this trailer for The Lurking Fear. And we did all these cool shots of, like, the creature's point of view burrowing through the underground and busting through the graveyard surface and seeing the graveyard. And, and we did all these cool special effects shots. Well, lo and behold, the trailer special effects shots got recycled and put into the movie. So, hmm. like... They cannibalized something else and gave us these monster hands, and I ended up being the monster hands. Like I am the I am the creature's hands digging through the underground tunnels, moving through the tunnels quickly. Oh, wow. um, and we tried to do it 
like I had one glove on and a guy on the other side of the camera because we had this rig where we'd pull this trough of dirt towards the camera. And as the trough of dirt was moving towards the camera, the idea was that we would reach in from either side of the camera and dig the dirt out of the way. And so the camera stayed still, but the dirt moved toward the camera. We dug the dirt out of the way and it looked like the camera and the hands were burrowing. It was like the creature's point of view burrowing through the ground. Hmm. It was problematic. We were having a lot of issues with it. And finally, I said to the other puppeteer, I said, let me have your glove. Because trying to get two different guys to be the same set of hands, it was just insane. So I took his glove and I climbed up on top the camera rig and I kneeled down over the top of the camera and I stuck my hands out in front of the lens. And I said, okay, let's try this again. And they rolled the dirt towards the camera. And now it was me with my two hands and I was in a better position. And I just tore at that dirt and ripped that dirt out of the way. And the, the effect started to work. So I, I stole the puppeteering job from the other guy, but we got the shot and we got things working. So then, yeah, you know, there's all this talk of, well, we're bringing it back and you can do the visual effects on the film and you can do this and you can do that. And no, they, they took the damn footage that we shot for the trailer and they recycled it and they stuck it into the film. So when you say you confuse Castle Freak with, uh, with um, the other film sometimes, yeah, Lurking Fear, they're both Charlie Band. It's him recycling stuff. It's him trying to get mileage. I, he could have shot the films at the same time in the same location. I don't know. So, you know, it's like, what's my, di what's the difference going to be in my character between this film and that film? Well, shave your beard, you know, <laughs> it, it's so, you know, Charlie Band strikes again. So I, I had a lot mm -hmm. of fun working on that stuff, but you know, that, that was Charlie Band. He could, he could take a cop, he could take a penny and turn it into copper wire. He really could. Um, mm -hmm. he could really do some crazy stuff. And I worked on just a, a slight Charlie band sidestep for a second. I worked on some other stuff for Charlie band, but it was just loose batches of things. Like he set up like a little temporary makeup effects studio. And I remember spending a couple of days at the makeup effects studio and he did an invisible man film at one point. Mm-hmm. And I remember working with some guys and we would like take a fiberglass cast of a, of a body and then we would cut chunks out of it. And it was supposed to be like a guy wrapped in a blanket. And the idea was that parts of him were invisible. So what we did was we wrapped the blanket then around the fiberglass shell, but then parts of the shell had been cut away. So if you can imagine a blanket partially wrapped around your upper body like you have it around your waist and then you have it around your shoulders, your head and your midsection would be visible. But because mm -hmm. we wrapped the blanket around a fiberglass shell, you could then cut away parts of the fiberglass shell and you could see through like the blanket had form and the blanket looked like it was on a shape, but you could see through it. So it was mm -hmm. kind of a cheap, cool trick. So I worked on stuff like that and, but it was all kinds of just weird, random stuff. Like today, you're going to pull a mold out of this monster head. And, you know, tomorrow we're going to send you over to John Beekler's shop and you're going to help John Beekler pull molds on something. And it was random. Every day was something different. And every day was some weird piece of something. Like years later, I could look at stuff and go, oh, that's what I worked on. Or, oh, that's what that was for. At the time, I had no idea. It was like, here, here's 150 bucks for the day. Go over and do this. Or here, here's... Can, can I get you for two days to help me do this? Well, what am I doing? I don't know. Just glue a hundred of these together. So it was, oh my gosh. 
yeah, there was a little bit of that. And, you know, I didn't always enjoy doing that kind of stuff because I loved knowing what the heck I was doing. But right. you know, sometimes you needed a paycheck and sometimes, you know, it was like, hey, you want to go work for John Beekler? And I'm like, do I want to go work for John Beekler or will I go work for John Beekler? Because John Beekler was an awesome guy. Mm. Work was not always the most consistently amazing stuff, but he was a great guy. And he kept a studio open for years when other people were shutting their studios down. But, you know, again, a paycheck was a paycheck. So short of pornography, you know, I would take the paycheck. So. <laughs> oh, for but sure, it got, man. It got me into a lot of crazy things. It got me into a lot of cool places. And I met a lot of really neat people. Um, one of the greatest thrills of my life was working on a crappy little low budget horror film called The Laughing Dead. And The Laughing Dead is not well known, and you probably will never see it. But their director of photography at the time was married to Barbara Crampton. Oh, okay. And one day, Barbara Crampton came to set to visit her husband. And dear God, that was that was a thrill, hanging out with Barbara Crampton. Because she was, she was such a beautiful woman, and she was so cool. And, you know, with scenes, with her being in stuff like you know, reanimator. It's weird because you like them as a person and you like them as a character and you like their acting and you've seen them naked. So it's kind of weird. <laughs> and then you meet them in person and there's that weird sort of embarrassing sort of, you know, you're just a cool person and you're just hanging out here talking to me, but I've seen you naked. And yeah, it's just, it's kind of a right. weird, it's kind of a weird place to be in, but no, I love meeting Barbara Crampton and, that all had to do with working on a crappy horror film. So, you know, even the crappy films a lot of times would lead to something very cool. Some, you know, meeting somebody or hanging out with somebody or, you know. So being on the edge of that whole Usna, Gordon, uh, Combs, Crampton camp was just, you know, was just fantastic. And speaking of, uh, speaking of From Beyond, From Beyond, that was Ken Foree that was in that, right? Yes. And I got yep. to meet Ken Foree many years later uh, in Florida. I got to meet Ken Foree and I got to talk to him and I got him to sign one of my. Uh, I had an original Dawn of the Dead poster. Oh my God. And I got Ken Foree to sign. That's one of my proudest possessions is my autographed Dawn of the Dead poster. But yeah, I love Ken Foree. Um, you know, and those guys, when you meet them under those circumstances, Ken Foree, Jeffrey Combs, Barbara Crampton, they're so easy to talk to and they're so those people don't have any airs like Jeffrey Combs is famous. He's successful, but he's not he's not some high and mighty, you know, studio actor. He's he's a guy and he likes doing this stuff and he has fun and he's just a good guy. And so it's so easy to talk to these people. And I can understand how they end up doing horror films and how they end up getting so involved because you know, they work with these filmmakers, they work with these makeup people, they get so close with the cast and crew. And then when the cast and crew and the makeup effects people move on to do their own movies, they've got personal relationships with these people. So they can they can go to Jeffrey Combs directly and say, Jeffrey, I'm working on this movie. Can you be in it? Or, oh, Jeffrey, I'm going to do an episode of Star Trek. Can you be on it? And they've got that personal connection. They don't have to go through their agents and go through all this hoopla they can just walk up to people and say, hey, I'm doing this thing. Are you interested? Um, you know, eventually there's contracts and there's union stuff and you have to deal with agents. But 
it's so much nicer when you can walk up to somebody like Ken Poirier and say, hey, Ken, I got this project going on. Would you be interested in talking about it? Um, some friends of mine are working on a project and uh, they were able to approach um, Ernie Hudson, you know, uh, mm -hmm. from from Ghostbusters. They were able to just walk up to Ernie and just say, hey, Ernie, working on this Western film, are, do you have any interest? And Ernie's like, hey, let's sit and talk. So that's really cool when the actors are accessible and available to you like that. Um, it can be dangerous because sometimes, you know, crazy people can get to you. But, you know, those guys are just so accessible and they're so easy to reach. They're so easy to talk to. And a lot of them are honest. A lot of them will say, this doesn't sound like my kind of project or no, I don't think I'm interested in this. But because they've got a reason not to do the project, not because you're nobody and I don't want to work with you. It's more like this isn't my cup of tea or no, I just did something like this and I don't want to do another one. They, they will talk to you about it as opposed to, I don't care what it is. Give me a paycheck and I'll do it. No, it's more Bruce Campbell. Bruce Campbell's the same way. He's accessible. You can talk to him. You can reach him. You can chat with him about things and, and he'll tell you the truth. He'll tell you what he thinks. You can ask him an opinion. He'll tell you what he thinks. It's, I, I really love getting to people like that. I, I love getting an actual honest reaction. I've tried reaching people who are much more well-known and much more uh, expensive. And um, you never get to the people. You get to their agents. You get to their people. You never get to the person themselves. And it, you never know if they heard you. They, you never know if they saw your script. You never know. I've, I've, I've had some experience trying to get to Betty White. And I won't go into that story. I've had some experience mm. trying to get to Betty White. I guarantee you nothing ever got to Betty White. It got to Betty White's people. And I understand Betty White's famous and Betty White's the real deal, but nothing ever got to Betty White. It all got to their people. Now, whether or not Betty White would have signed off on it, who knows? Because nothing ever got to Betty White, I'll tell you that. So that's a whole other story. We'll talk about that some other time. <laughs> ah, for sure. For sure. Sorry, I, I totally derailed us there. I'm not even sure where we're at now. <laughs> where, where, where are we at? Space truckers? Um. um Oh, space truckers. Which one's that? Um, now is that one that I've seen that that you haven't seen that you're not as familiar with? Yeah, I'm not. I'm not really too familiar with space truckers. Space, <laughs> space truckers was another one of these films that you know I think had it. It came out in '96. Uh, so he did Castle Freak in 1995, and that was you know more of that Charlie Band sort of direct to cable or direct to video era. Space Truckers was, you know what? He, he tried doing science fiction. He did Robot Jocks. He did Fortress to varying degrees of success. To me, Space Truckers is the science fiction film where Stuart Gordon, he kind of came back to his roots. And Space Truckers, it's funny. It's quirky. It's weird. It's cool science fiction. It's fun. But Space Truckers is about exactly what it says. It's set in the far future. And these guys... As opposed to over-the-road truckers who drive semi-trucks, um, Dennis Hopper is this hes this deep space truck driver. And basically, they've got these space tugs, and they hook up to cargo, and they drive cargo through deep space from spaceport to spaceport. So it's literally space truckers. And hmm. the opening is hysterical because they've genetically engineered pigs to fit into square cages. So the pigs themselves are square. And there's a sign that says like square pigs for a square meal. 
And so he's got like cages full of square pigs in his cargo. And he's like delivering square pegs to a uh, square pigs to a space outpost. So the movie's quirky and weird and funny. And then he gets involved with a young guy and this young girl and they go on a series of space adventures and there's all kinds of fun science fiction and spaceships and there's a quest to the guy's on a quest to like find his mother and his mother's been left in suspended animation so when they find his mother she should be this craggy old woman but she's been in suspended animation for a long time so they find mom and they let mom out of the suspended animation and it's Barbara Crampton. So she's young, beautiful, and so all of a sudden uh, Dennis Hopper has somebody to be in love with and have a love interest in because they get there and they find out that mom is still young and hot. It's just (laughs) – and it's just weird and quirky and fun and, again, probably kind of more of an A-level production that didn't get the love. It didn't get the theatrical release. It didn't get get any of the the attention that it should have. So – Space Truckers, that's probably the last time he tried to do like a big budget theatrical thing. And then he turned more back towards the exploitation films and he turned back towards the TV stuff. Um, But yeah, I I would recommend checking out Space Truckers because at first glance, you'll think this isn't a Stuart Gordon film. But then when you watch it and you see some of the quirk and some of the weirdness, it's got that Stuart Gordon sensibility to it, but just on like a PG rated level. You know, it doesn't have mm-hmm. it doesn't have transforming bodies. It doesn't have body horror. It doesn't have gore splattering all over the place. It's a little more straight and level. Um, but it, but I thought it was a very entertaining movie, almost kind of a kind of a Guardians of the Galaxy sort of an edge to it without Guardians of the Galaxy's budget. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so I yeah, I recommend it. It's a lot of fun. It's yeah, I'll, fun. I'll definitely have to uh, add that to my watch list. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, uh. Speaking of like uh, Stuart Gordon's sci-fi movies, and I know we talked about Fortress the last time, but you know, back like when I was younger and I watched Fortress, I didn't really know who Stuart Stuart Gordon was. You know, like I didn't know about Reanimator and you know all those films quite yet. But that movie, um, it kind of reminded me a little bit of RoboCop. And maybe Red from that '70s show might have had something to do with it. Oh, but, shit. Uh, <laughs> but uh, um, you know, looking back on that movie, that was a really well-made movie, and I'm surprised that it didn't get, you know, a bigger uh, push than uh, what it perceived to have gotten. Yes, uh, I agree, and I think you're dead on. I think you're spot on on the RoboCop influence. I think the RoboCop influence um, is definitely there. Um, and I want to say, um, again, I'm searching the internet here. Um, okay, the producer on Fortress was John Davis, and if I'm if I'm correct here, I want to say John Davis worked on. Uh, Oh, I thought John Davis worked on uh, RoboCop. He did not work on RoboCop, but um, but I, I feel like there's a, a, a I feel like there's a, a a RoboCop influence somewhere within Fortress, and I don't know if it's like story or screenplay or what, but I, I don't think you're far off there. And then yeah, of course, Kurt, Kurtwood Smith mm-hmm. being in it, you know. 
Kurtwood Smith will always be, um, what the heck was his character's name in RoboCop? Oh my gosh. Uh, Clarence oh. Boddicker. Clarence Boddicker. <laughs> can, can you fly, Bobby? So, um, <laughs> yeah, no, anytime you put Kurtwood Smith in something, you're going to think uh, RoboCop. But no, that's a good observation. I think Fortress very definitely has that kind of feeling. Even maybe it's the time frame, the technology, yeah, the, the aesthetics. Design. Yeah, the aesthetics, the police force, the the sort of corporation, the powerful corporation gone wrong kind of thing. Yeah, there's definitely an element of that there. Definitely an element of that. Right, um, right. It's well, interesting and- that you went backwards and discovered his his older stuff then. That must have been that must have been a shock. Now, when you went back and found like Reanimator and From Beyond, did you know it was the same director? Or did you did yeah. you discover the films first? Well, um, I discovered the films first. So, you know, I discovered, uh, you know, uh, I don't know. I guess I was more like into like the science fiction stuff, you know, when I was younger. And, you know, and I had told you previously that, you know, I watched Predator at a really young age. (laughs) So I think that kind of stemmed, you know, more of like the science fiction side of stuff. But then. I gradually got into horror and just kind of, you know, <laughs> went down a rabbit hole, so to speak, with that. <laughs> right. Yes. But, but no, uh, yeah, that's interesting because I I knew Stuart, uh, Stuart Gordon's science fiction movies before I knew his horror movies. Okay. And and I didn't realize that Stuart Gordon had made Fortress until. Um, later on in life, really. Um, oh, you know. So then, when I watched Reanimator stuff, I'm like, oh yeah, Stuart Gordon, like he he can make some pretty good horror movies. And then when I look him up, I'm like, holy crap, he did Fortress. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's <Yeah>. amazing. <laughs> yeah, I've done that with directors before, where I'm I'm look. It's like I, I'm aware of a film. But then I look up who actually directed it, and I'm like, oh, my God, I, I didn't realize that was that guy for whatever reason, whether it's a different kind of movie or, you know, just, yeah, it wasn't on my radar or something like that. So, yeah, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Right, yeah. In, uh, you know, I guess yeah, we're on the subject of Fortress. Um, I was watching some clips earlier today, and, uh, you know, there's some really, like, brilliant pardon my French, but there's some brilliant shit in that movie. <laughs> like the uh the uh detonator inside, you know, uh yeah. people's body. And then, yeah. you know, uh Jeffrey Combs, which I love his his character in that movie. <laughs> yeah. He's just kind of the you know, that far out kind of loony type yeah. genius. Which, which he does so well. I mean I've seen <laughs> him play more seen him play more reserved characters and i think a lot of his work on star trek is a little more reserved but he just he does crazy so well he does out there on the edge so incredibly well and i think he's capable of doing really solid dramatic work or you can take him off the leash and just let him run with shit and and yeah he does he does that kind of part really really well he's got kind of the market cornered like when you want a Jeffrey Combs type character, you go out and get Jeffrey Combs. It's like, I want somebody crazy and wild and unpredictable like Jeffrey Combs. Okay, go cast Jeffrey Combs because that's the guy. 
that's the that's the dude to get for that part yeah um right and right. that's kind of there's kind of a subgenre of films um i'm trying to think of other films but there there've been a variety of films with like collars on the neck explosive devices there's this you could probably create like a subgenre of films that have to do with explosive devices in or on people that limit their movement or control them somehow because I'm, I'm i'm at a loss for some of the titles right now but i know there are several other science fiction films that have to do with explosive devices or explosive devices figure into the film somehow um yeah but, but well, yeah one comes to mind uh was it it was either Blade One or Blade Two. Okay. Where he puts, uh, it might have been Blade Two, where he puts uh, Wesley Snipes put uh, explosive device on. Uh, okay. Oh, shoot, what's that guy's name? Uh, it Ron. It's on oh, the back yes. of his head. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Ron. Uh, yeah. Ron Perlman. Ron Perlman. Yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a whole. We'll have to go through and find those movies at some point and list all the movies with explosive control devices. Um, yeah. There's yeah. probably more than, than what we really think there is. <laughs> There's several at least that have collars. I can visualize the collars and I can remember them. Um, oh, and did uh, did um, Suicide Squad do that? Did Suicide Squad have like explosive collars or something? Was like, it for uh, Killer Croc? Uh, or it was for the guy who uh, it was like a guy that they introduced long enough to give him a character name. And then he like tries to flee the scene. And yeah, but I, I would even suicide squad has an element of that where if you mm. don't cooperate, we will kill you with explosives. So yeah, oh, we'll, we'll, yeah. Put, we'll yeah. put that on the list of things to, to, to research, you know, <laughs> films with yeah, explosive sure. devices. Yeah. So yeah, well, oh, to tie in with the fortress thing, I was watching that scene where they're taking the uh, explosive device out of their bodies, yes. and they figured out it was magnetic. Now, oh, was yes. that was that something that uh, um, is that like uh, you know, the special effects obviously were uh, something that you know Stuart Gordon uses in his films was that uh you know the same team that would work on like reanimator and from beyond or was that like a completely different team you know i'm not a hundred percent certain on that but i feel like right off the top of my head i feel like fortress was done in kind of a different environment like i feel like fortress was something where we were getting we were getting um, a lot of cooperation and we were, uh, I, don't, I don't understand how to, I'm kind of losing my words on how to say this. <laughs> we were getting a lot of cooperation with them and we were in coordination with them a lot, but I feel like they were working in another country. I feel like they were working out of like Australia or New Zealand or something because, you know, it was a f fairly pricey film in terms of like sets and things like that. So rather than shoot it in Hollywood, I think they went to Australia and shot it. So I want to say because it was in Australia and because it had Australian crew, I think he went with people in Australia. But there's good people in Australia. Like Australia is where they did all the Matrix stuff and like, you know, like the the baby with the implants and, you know, Keanu Reeves with all the 
the internet jack plugs on his body. That was all stuff done by guys in Australia. So there's good mm. people in Australia. But I want to say that some of the body effects stuff was done by the Australian crew. I'm I'm drawing a blank on names, but yeah, because I feel like a lot of our correspondence when we were doing the effects and working on the miniatures, the miniatures were still in Hollywood. But mm-hmm. yeah, all of our correspondence and our footage and our, you know, back in the day, because it wasn't emails, it was like faxes and stuff. Oh, so wow. we're, yeah, we're faxing stuff back and forth. But yeah, I, I, so I want to say that Fortress was one film where he wasn't able to tap into the U.S. crew. But um, no, I thought what they did, though, they did fine. I thought what they did was was good. It wasn't any more or less than it needed to be. So, you know, there was no unnecessary, un, oh, no excessive body horror in the film any more than what needed to be, I think. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, it, it definitely had the body gore in it. For yeah. being a sci-fi film, yeah, yeah, but uh, yeah, man, <laughs> yeah, and I know, you know we had. There's huh? the difference between the ultra big budget studio and the indie low budget films, and, and I mean, Fortress, you're still talking about like a twelve million dollar film, which back in the '90s, early '90s, that's still that's a lot of money, but you know, in and in a twelve million dollar indie film, you could still blow people up, and you could still perform you know ghetto prison operations on people and you could still do crazy stuff mm-hmm. if fortress if fortress becomes a 100 or 150 million or 200 million dollar studio film with you know tom cruise you don't get to splat people you don't get to operate on people it's you know the indie world and the low budget world allows you to be more cutting edge and more extreme you move it into the hundred, two hundred million dollar arena and try and do something with it. I just was talking to a guy the other day, um, and I can't go into great detail because names got mentioned, but they were talking about the the, the remake of Escape from New York, and and they've been developing the remake of Escape from New York for for a long time now, and. There's some movement on it and there's some people attached to it and there's there's discussion about the film. And that's the part I can't talk about because this was somebody who knows somebody and, you know, is on the inside track of what's happening possibly with that movie. Mm-hmm. But thinking about Escape from New York, Escape from New York was a six million dollar film made in 1981. And it it could be what it wanted to be at six million dollars. Nobody I mean, people cared, but John Carpenter had the freedom to be able to make that film what he wanted it to be and there's another film with explosive devices in someone's neck that could kill them that's that's another film we have to put on the list but um (laughs) but now the the remake they're talking about budgets and people involved that that's not what that film was i mean that film was low budget and gritty and creative and it was economical and it was sparse and it it set up such a good feel and such a good such a good vibe. And if you try to put a hundred million dollar budget on that film, you try to hang a name on that film, I think it's gonna kind of ruin everything about that film. And and I'm somebody who's not I'm in favor of an Escape from New York remake. I like the idea of being able to do things with Escape from New York that weren't done in the first film. I am not in favor of throwing a ton of money at it. And doing it on a studio level because it's not going to be the movie that it needs to be. We don't need Escape from New York as a Marvel or DC style, style superhero franchise. We need Escape from New York as the gritty film 
I mean, I guess you could just make the argument to leave it alone and not do it. But but my whole point here is, again, Stuart Gordon working in a time, working in an era. And when he did his best work, he was working with freedom. He was given smaller budgets, but he was allowed the freedom to be who he was and create. And and he came up with great stuff because of it. And you just don't get that kind of freedom and that kind of creativity and strangeness. I mean, there are few filmmakers who've earned the right. You know, James Cameron can kind of do what he wants. Martin Scorsese can kind of do what he wants. Spielberg could probably do what he wants. Spielberg's never going to make a body horror film, but Spielberg could kind of do what he wants. But those guys, uh, you know, Martin Scorsese, occasionally he'll like crank somebody's head in a vice and pop somebody's eye out, or he'll beat somebody with a baseball bat, or, you know, he'll do something that's kind of gory and shocking, but Martin Scorsese is an artist, so he gets away with all this stuff and he does whatever he wants to do. But we've not seen anybody with the caliber or the clout of like a Stuart Gordon get to rise to the surface of the big studio films. I mean, Peter Jackson to a certain degree, but even Peter Jackson's most radical movies, um, I guess if you if you talk about some of his movies, like maybe Pan's Labyrinth or uh, The Shape of Water, there's some gore and there's some graphic in those movies. But even those movies, like Shape of Water was a small film compared to like his Lord of the Rings movies. Or his Hobbit films. I mean, Shape of Water was not a $150 million epic. Shape of Water was a small little film. So it, it's really interesting. I'm, I'm harping on it now. That this move towards these big studios to make these massive mega budget films has really taken a lot of the edge off these films. Um, occasionally you get a roll of the dice. You get someone like David Fincher making like Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. But then as soon as Girl with the Dragon Tattoo doesn't make a billion dollars, they don't do any more. Like there were supposed to be more films in that sequel, in that sequence. But because Dragon Tattoo didn't make a billion dollars, they didn't do another one. Um, World War Z. World War Z was a big film. It was successful. It did well. But there was so much sort of confusion and problems trying to get a sequel. And now the sequel's taken so much time. We're not going to get a sequel. They've officially canceled the sequel. So... I, what I'm really talking about here is I'm just lamenting the loss of those low budget indie films that really gave us, you know, some of these horror uh, classics. Um, and I just occasionally like you mentioned Midsummer. I've never seen Midsummer, but tiny little foreign film. So these guys were given a small budget and they were given some freedom and they did something amazing. And once in a while something like that happens. But I, I personally, I really miss the, I really miss those days. I know it sounds like I'm biting the hand that feeds me because I'm bagging on the studio system. It's just, we're at an extreme right now. We're at an extreme where we're just not seeing films made by Stuart Gordon's anymore. And I think it's a shame. And maybe someday the studio system will collapse a little bit and we'll go back to smaller films and guys like Stuart Gordon will get a chance again. Maybe they'll get a chance to strut their stuff. I'd love to see it. I think we're missing out on, I think there's a lot of great filmmakers around the world who have something to say and who have some really fun movies in them, but we're not getting to see them because the economics don't make sense. Um, and so I'd love to see something. Um, I'd love to see something happen. I'd love to see Netflix start funding more low budget horror films. I'd love to see, and we're seeing some of that. I mean, we're seeing shows and series and limited series on like Netflix and stuff 
that we wouldn't see otherwise. But yeah, I'd love to see Netflix. I'd love to see Netflix give like a hundred filmmakers $5 million to make genre films. I think that would just be amazing. And I think some of the stuff you'd see would be fantastic. And I'm sorry, I've gone way off the rails here. Oh no, no, this is great. This is great, man. (laughs) I'm on a rant now. And me as a filmmaker, I've said many times, if a studio came to me tomorrow and said, Wyatt, we want to give you a hundred million dollars to make something. I wouldn't say no. I may also argue, well, give me a hundred million dollars and let me make five movies. Don't, don't spend it all on one movie. Mm -hmm. Give me, give me, give me a hundred million dollars and let me spend like 20 or 30 of it on at the mountains of madness. And then let me spend like 10 or 20 on call of Cthulhu. And then let me take the other 50 and make other films. But you know, if someone came to me tomorrow and said, here's a hundred million dollars, make a Batman movie. I'd be like, okay, well, See, I don't even know if I'd want to spend $100 million on a Batman film. I just, uh, I just, money, money is not always the answer. I think when you're making Avatar, money is the answer. But I think for just about anything else, I, I just don't know that money is always the answer. And I'm so low tech as a filmmaker and I'm so sort of back to basics as a filmmaker. I, I don't know if I'd feel morally right about spending hundreds of millions of dollars on something. I just, I don't know. But you know what? Give me the money tomorrow and I'll answer the question then. You know, it's you know, if if a two hundred million dollar film is gonna give me personally a five million dollar paycheck, that could change my attitude entirely. That could change my attitude completely. So anyway. <laughs> oh yeah, this, yeah. I uh I'm with you, man. Like, yeah. Uh try to uh get more more, you know, more out of the money that you're getting. Yeah. Instead of just making you know one big ass movie try to try to monetize it a little bit to where hey we could we could stretch this you know we could stretch out ten thousand dollars to do this and you know you know have a lot of you know yeah you know and i could just keep keep going on and on about different departments you know (laughs) right but yeah i mean you could definitely make something um, with that much. <laughs> now, coming back to Stuart Gordon, I have to admit, I, I have to be honest with you and anyone who's listening, I sort of lost track of Stuart Gordon's later work. I always liked the guy, I always respected him. And it was funny because every time I'd hear he was working on something, I'd be like, oh, good for him. I'm glad Stuart Gordon's working. But as as it got later on, I, I was I was bad about not finding his stuff. Like, um, some of his later feature films, like you know, Wonderful Ice Cream Suit, King of the Ants, Edmund, Stuck. I've not seen these movies. Um, mm-hmm. And then his TV work, I, I'm ashamed to say, I probably saw. He directed an episode of Honey I Shrunk the Kids, the TV show, and I actually kind of enjoyed the Honey I Shrunk the Kids TV show. I watched that, um, but like I, I, I regret to say, I have not seen his Masters of Horror episodes. Um, so although I was aware that he did dreams in the witch house, I, I haven't actually seen it. Have you, have you seen a uh, lot of TV stuff? Uh, yeah. Uh, I did, uh, actually, I think I own both of the DVDs of, uh, of Stuart uh, ugh, Stuart Gordon's, uh, the witch house and, uh, the black cat. Right. Right. And, uh, they're, they're both, you know, I, I've, I think that they're pretty well made for for what it is, right? You know, as a, as a TV show type sure. type deal. And uh, I want to say I 
I don't know if I watched like a documentary or something. It was uh, kind of like uh, kind of how how it came to be where Masters of, of Horror came to be. Oh. And I, I guess uh, what it was was a lot of these horror directors would just kind of get together and like, you know, go out for supper or something, you know, and oh. they would just talk. And that was fantastic. Yeah, uh, I, I forgot what the what I watched. I think it was on YouTube somewhere. It, it might have been like behind the scenes type stuff of Masters of Horror. But, okay. uh, but um, that sounds fantastic. That sounds just really cool. Yeah, yeah. Like, and and really, you know, some of the directors that were a part of it were talking about, you know, th- this this kind of came to be before we even took it to the studios. You know, like we had kind of talked about like what if we did you know not saying like tales from the crypt but you know what if what if we got you know directors that have done great work in the horror genre what what if we all come together each one do an episode short film and then you know put it all together and then uh i I think Stuart gordon was a big a big part of that and um because it was kind of a, it was, I mean, Masters of Horror was a great title because it was kind of a who's ho- who of horror. I mean, it was Don Coscarelli, Stuart Gordon, Toby Hooper, John Garrett Carpenter. Argento, John Carpenter, Mick Garris, Joe Dante, John Landis. Yeah, um, yeah it was everybody. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was all of, so do you recommend that I seek out the, uh, the Masters of Horror series and check it out? Is it, is it worth tracking down? Oh. Oh yeah, I mean, I I definitely think it is. Um, you know, it's it's definitely a part of of uh, you know, like you know, everybody's not in their prime, but they they're at least showing you that they still have it. Gotcha. Okay. All right. You know, they 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 they'll still they they still grab you as far as. Um, you know, they still, you know, some, I will say some are hit or miss, okay. you know, and I, I won't say names. Okay. But, uh, <laughs> Cause you know, they're the masters of horror, but, uh, I will say, uh, I did enjoy the, the black cat episode. Okay. Okay. With, uh, Jeffrey Combs playing Edgar Allan Poe. Okay. Um, in, uh, what is the one that, uh, dreams in the witch house. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Stuart Gordon, he did a phenomenal job. Okay. I did enjoy his. And uh, <laughs> one of the bizarre ones is uh, Dario Argento's Jennifer. Okay. That one, that one's a little on the bizarre side. Okay. But, well, it's uh, Dario Argento, so that doesn't really shock me or anything. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Well, it's not like a Jalo film at all, which is, is different to see him do. It's kind of a. I want to say a creature feature, but okay. uh, uh, this there's this lady, kind of like a feral woman with abnormalities. Yeah. <laughs> and she, you know, her name's Jennifer. And so the whole episode is about her. That one, yeah, that one, <laughs> that okay. one is odd, but. Uh, and are they all kind of the same length? Were they like half hour or one hour? Were they different? I want to say. I want to say they're like hour long episodes. Okay. They're kind of, 
you know, the, uh, yeah, hour-long episodes. Uh, I don't know who the company was that, you know, funded the money or whatever, but they were just kind of like, okay, this is your budget. Go yeah. make a movie and, you know, know see what you come up with. They were originally on Showtime. I know that. They were originally on Showtime. And Mick Garris, who was kind of the creator, supervisor of the thing. Mick Garris has been around and done. I don't know that I would call him a master of horror, but Mick Garris has been around a while and done a lot of cool stuff. So so kind of mm-hmm. supervised by Mick Garris and screened on Showtime. So, And I remember hearing a lot about it. And, you know, I go to a lot of horror conventions and I meet a lot of people who are horror fans. And that that series comes up a lot. So I, I, I feel like I should. I feel like I owe it to myself to find it and track it down and at least watch some of it just just so just so I know just so I can experience um, some of it. Um, I was looking at some of the credits uh, for Master of Masters of Horror, and one of the episodes I saw, Dance of the Dead, was directed by Toby Hooper. Mm-hmm. And I know you've asked me before about Tales from the Crypt because I I actually worked on an episode of Tales from the Crypt. I worked on two episodes of Tales from the Crypt, but one of the episodes I worked on was with Toby Hooper. Uh, he was the director. And I did some miniatures for that particular episode. And I'm, I'm trying to remember the name of the episode. Um, I will uh, be Dead to... Weight. Dead Weight. Okay. Yes. And it was this kind of... Uh, it was this creepy sort of voodoo magic, you know, back in the bayou and, uh, you know, intrigue and you know, an affair and the lover trying to bump off the husband. And it was, it was a fun episode, but um, it had uh, the cast was, it was directed by Toby Hooper, but then it, the cast was Whoopi Goldberg, Vanity, like the singer performer Vanity mm-hmm. and James Remar, James Remar, who played, uh, who was in the Warriors and right, just, right. it was a great cast. It was a great bunch of people to work with. But Toby Hooper was incredibly cool, and Toby was very laid back, and everything was far out, far out, man, far out. Hmm. Um, and at one point in time, I got to talk to him, and I got to—I I told him how much I loved Life Force, and he appreciated that. I loved Life Force, and I asked him about because I had only at that point seen the American version of Life Force, and I knew there was a longer, like a European version of Life Force. And so I asked him about Life Force and, and a director's cut or a longer version. And he said, you know, he said the original version of Life Force that I cut, he said, was actually about three hours long. And I said, wow, seriously. He goes, yeah, it's like an epic version of the movie. He said and it, it only really exists like we transferred it to videotape. He said, so the version that we watch, like there's a VHS version of the three hour cut of life force floating around somewhere. And then he's kind of, I, I don't know where that's at. I'm going to find that someday. So Cooper <laughs> and yeah, there's a three hour cut of life force somewhere, man. Um, we need I, I to see just, that. Oh my God. I was like tripping. I was just <laughs> like, Oh, you know, and I held, I, I kept it together pretty well. I didn't freak out too much, but I was like, wow, that's amazing. Um, I have since gotten a, version of the thea- of the European cut of Life Force, which is a longer version of the film than the American version. But I've still never seen the three-hour VHS version of uh, Life Force. But it was cool to work with Toby Hooper, and it was cool to talk to him. Because he's another one of those guys who was very down-to-earth. He wasn't all about putting on airs and 
being very important and getting back to his trailer so he could get away from everybody. He was somebody who hung out on set, chomped on his cigar, and talked to people and hung out with people and was very cool. As a matter of fact, everybody was very cool. I was able to talk to Vanity. I was able to talk to James Remar. I was able to talk to Whoopi Goldberg. I bumped into Whoopi several times because I worked on Star Trek and she was around the stage when we were on Star Trek and then mm-hmm. and saw her on uh, and saw her on this. But um, she's very funny because she could be she could be very how, how do I say it? Somebody was correcting her on her lines of dialogue and Whoopi was like, I don't want lines of dialogue. Damn. You don't, you don't got to correct me in front of everybody. I don't know my damn lines of dialogue. But she was doing it in a way that was very funny. So the entire crew is laughing. She was kind of saying, don't correct me. I know my dialogue. Just give me a chance. But she did it in a very funny way that kind of got the point across. Like, leave me the hell alone. But she did it in a very funny way. So everybody kind of left her alone. So it was cool that she could do stuff like that. She was Whoopi Goldberg, man. I think she'd already won an Oscar at that point for uh, for mm-hmm. Ghost. And, you know, she was Whoopi freaking Goldberg. It's like, don't correct Whoopi on set because she'll she'll tell you, don't correct me on set. But still very cool, very easy to work with. Very, And I did a scene uh, in that episode. It all took place in like a southern plantation back in the bayou. And so they had a set that was like the porch of the plantation house, but there wasn't anything beyond the porch. The porch was on a soundstage. So I did a hanging miniature is what they call it, where I built the rooftop and I built the surrounding grounds and I built a couple of trees. And basically you float this miniature roof in, in front of the camera, but closer to the camera so that it looks like the set has a roof on it. So I was able to put a roof on top of this plantation house and I was able to float in a couple of big trees where there weren't any trees on set. Um, And then on another episode of Tales from the Crypt, which was an episode directed by by, uh, Kevin Hooks directed it. I want to say it was a year or two later. um, This episode by Kevin Hooks, uh, same kind of thing where they needed a, a train station and the train station didn't really exist. So I built... I built like the train station covers and I built a couple of train cars and we like hung them up off the stage floor about 10 or 15 feet. And then we got up on scaffolding and we shot down through the miniature train cars and the the roof covers down to the empty stage floor. And so the actors walked on the stage floor in between where the miniatures were. And it looked like basically they were walking on the platform of the train station with train cars on either side. But basically, hmm. it was two actors standing on the stage floor, you know, 30 feet away. So it was a very expensive and big budget looking shot without, you know, without all the expense. Um, and then we had people like walking up with luggage and turning and looking like they were stepping up onto the train cars. But really, they were just going behind the miniature cars in the foreground and then standing off stage. So it looked like there were people getting on and off the train. Um, so yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun. It was very cool to, uh, to work on that. Uh, oh, very wow. cool. And Kevin hooks was uh, a young director who had, he had just done passenger 57. I think he'd done passenger 57. And then he did, he did this tales from the crypt episode. I don't know what else he's done since then, but uh, um, young black director who uh, was doing action adventure stuff. And, 
Um, not as accessible as Toby Hooper, but still very easy to work with. And I got to sat, sit down and work on the design of the shot with him and do some sketches. And, you know, he signed off on it and then basically was like, OK, go ahead, go make it. Um, TV is interesting mm -hmm. because TV moves fast. TV moves very fast. And you have to be ready to go and ready to shoot. And so it was like, yeah, that's cool. That looks great. That's what I want. Build it. Let's be ready to go. And you know, it, not a lot of fussing around and lot, not a lot of, uh, not a lot of screwing around with that here. Here's your money, make it for this amount, be ready on this day, be ready to go. Boom, done. Um, and that's what both episodes of Tales from the Crypt were like. They were fun. They were creative. They were, they were a really good time, but they were quick and they were fast. And if you weren't ready to go on time, you were in trouble. So on TV, you, on TV, you learn how to move and move quickly and be ready to go. They don't, they don't wait. It's not like a big budget film. They don't wait around for you to get it ready. It's like you need to be ready to go at this time. And if you're not ready to go, we're going to hang you, basically. So, mm. so no pressure. No pressure. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> well, yeah. Uh, two for the show was the name of that episode. Yes. And uh, I watched it earlier. And, oh, man, it, it really is a good episode. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> my wife kind of eavesdropped in a few times. And she's just like, <laughs> she's just like this isn't a good episode. I'm like, well, that's because you haven't even watched it from beginning to end. <laughs> yeah. You know, was that, uh, was that David Paymer? Is that the guy's name? Um, because Paymer doesn't, he doesn't do a lot of stuff. And that's, that was one of the interesting things about, about that. I, if I'm getting, if I'm getting the guy right, I, I feel like, uh, um, Oh, uh, the, the husband. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, uh, he's he's one of those guys like, oh, my gosh, I know who that guy yes, is. Yes, exactly. Yeah. But I don't know his name. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. He, you um, know, yeah. sadly, he falls into that category. Yeah. And Vincent Spano, the young, handsome guy. I mean, he's he's more recognizable. But yeah, David Paymer. Yes, he's that guy who's like that guy. I know that guy. Who is that guy? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, he's been in like tons of stuff. Yeah. Um, um, and unfortunately, Tracy Lords was in that episode. I got nowhere near Tracy Lords. I think that would have been fun. Uh, I got to see Vincent Spano. I got to see David Paymer. But no, I'd, I, I, I'd it'd kind of been fun to get somewhere near Tracy Lords, but that unfortunately did not happen. So that was going to be my next question. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I wish I had a great, I got some great stories about some actresses and just actresses who, have been accessible and not accessible, but, and stories about them, but no, Tracy Lords, she is somebody just from a standpoint of like history. Um, just because with her notoriety and just coming from the pornography background and then the controversy of she was underage, like her first, I don't know how many films she did. She wasn't legally of age. She lied. So then all mm -hmm. of a sudden, all these adult films that she'd done were like illegal and they had to be banned. Like all these films you did from this time to this time, they, they need to go away because they're illegal and people are going to get sued. So there was that whole controversy. And then the fact that she did a pretty legit switchover to legitimate films. And so to you, there's, you can count on one hand, the number of actresses who've gone from actual hardcore pornography to legitimate films. And she managed to do it. And, and she did some things that were okay. And she was, you know, f featured in smaller parts in decent films. Like she had a little part in Blade. Um, yes. 
Yeah. yeah. And so I'm really impressed with someone like her. So I wish I could have met her just to say I'd met her. Um, but there were other people like Julie Strain. I, I spent a lot of time with Julie Strain, um, who who was just this big, crazy, sweet Amazon warrior lady. Um, so so Julie Strain was was pretty awesome. Um, uh, Barbara Crampton, I've always loved. Um, yeah, just there there are women in the film industry. I I recently discovered something. I'm a, a little off the track from. Uh, Tales from the Crypt. I'm sorry, but oh, it's okay. <laughs> there's this genre actor actress named uh, Maria Ford, and I just posted on my Facebook page about this recently. Um, Maria Ford, uh, she she did a series of like low budget action exploitation and horror films, and I first encountered her on Necronomicon. There's the segment of Necronomicon, uh, the Drowned, and it's. You know, the guy goes to the big old mansion and there was the the shipwreck and he encounters this this woman who drowned. And it's the woman is played by Maria Ford. And there's some very creepy mm. stuff with her. And but anyway, meeting Maria Ford on Necronomicon and then meeting her like at the rap party and meeting her at other things. She was this very sweet, very attractive very professional woman. And despite the fact that she got naked in a lot of these films and a lot of these films were not brilliant films, she was actually pretty good. And again, she was, there's been a couple of actresses I've met in my life who you stand 18 inches away from them and they're just beautiful. Like they don't need makeup. They don't need lighting. They're beautiful. Vanity was one of them. Kathleen Turner was one of them. Maria Ford was one of them. Maria Ford was just, you could stand 18 inches away from that woman and talk to her. And she was just naturally beautiful. I found some photos of her recently and she's had so much plastic surgery done. She doesn't even look like herself anymore. And I don't know what happened. I don't know mm. where that went off the rails. I don't know what possessed her because she's a couple of years younger than me. I'm 55. So she was probably she's probably 52, 53. She doesn't even someone recently said to me, she looks like a transgendered man. She looks like a man who got a sex change operation and became a woman. No offense to the transgender community, but you know what I'm saying. People mm -hmm. who have sometimes switched gender have a particular look because they're artificially changed. To go from this natural, beautiful woman that she was to looking like a transgender woman with stretched face and swollen lips and augmented body, I don't know what on earth happened to this woman. Um, it was I, I kept thinking I was wrong and I kept looking at photos and I kept checking IMDb and I kept going to websites because I was certain this could not be Maria Ford. This had to be another woman. And it was Maria Ford. And when I finally figured it out, I, I was really I was sad. and I was kind of heartbroken because I just can't imagine what would possess someone to do that. I mean, I would much rather see someone, an actor or an actress get old naturally than not look like themselves anymore. Um, and that goes for men too. I would much rather see a man age and wear his age than stretch his features and distort his features to a degree that I don't even know who that is anymore because we fall in love with these people. Like, you know, you fall in love with Meg Ryan in Top Gun 
or some other movie that she's in when Harry met Sally. And then nowadays Meg Ryan doesn't even look like Meg Ryan anymore. So, you know, you follow Maria Ford through these horror films and these thrillers and these erotic thrillers and you fall in love with this little blonde actress and then you see her today and I'm like, what, what happened to you? You're not, you're not who I remember liking. You're not who I remember watching. And, and actors do that too sometimes. I mean, men, men aren't completely immune to that. I mean, even like Robert Redford, I see Robert Redford in movies like, you know, Captain America, Civil War. And I'm like, what happened to Robert Redford's eyes? What happened yeah. is what happened to his face? And like, you were Robert Redford, dude, leave, leave it alone. You you're a classic. Like, <laughs> thank God Harrison Ford's never done anything to his face. I mean, if Harrison yeah. Ford gets face work done, I'm I give up at that point. If Harrison Ford, <laughs> you know, that'll that'll be the, that'll be it for me or clint eastwood if clint eastwood shows up with a facelift i'm oh my god i'm packing <laughs> up and going home so anyway, no, I, anyway i'm with you man no i'm with you like in you know we're seeing a lot of this nowadays with uh you know the the you know i'm not just saying just women i mean guys do it too but we're starting to see like you know the botox is yeah. is everything nowadays yeah and it's like you know, and I'm one of those people like I, I don't find that attractive. No, no. You know, I would rather see them. You know, for who they are. Yes. And, and I know, you know they're under pressure. I I cannot imagine what it's like to be a woman, let alone be a woman in Hollywood. I'm sure they're under a huge amount of pressure. I I would personally, if there's any actresses out there listening to me right now, I would say. Whoever is pressuring you to look like something that you're not, you don't need them. And if they want you to change for their films, if they want your face to change for their films, if they want your boobs to change for their films, you don't need to work on their films. I know that's hard because sometimes you feel like you're going to lose the work. Um, even actresses like Meryl Streep have said as soon as she crossed over a certain age, as soon as she became a mother and then a grandmother – she saw roles just go to other people. It's like, you're Meryl Streep. We can only give you these kinds of roles now. And she's Meryl freaking Streep. So even Meryl Streep, I know, deals with stuff like this. But I don't think you need it. I don't think that I don't think that acting is important enough for you to train. I don't think you're I don't think your acting career is important enough for you to go through body horror. You know, I don't, right, I don't think your right. acting career is important enough for you to become like something out of a Brian Usna film. I <laughs> that's there you go. That's bringing it full circle, baby. Yes, that's in this yes. conversation full circle back to the beginning right there. So don't put yourself through body horror for this industry. That's that's all I got to say about that. Yes. Yeah. Save, save that for the Usna films. There you go. Yeah. Let 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 Screaming Mad George do the makeup on you, but don't do it to yeah. yourself. Yeah. Yeah. yeah <laughs> yes. <there you> <laughs> uh yeah man um wow this is uh i think been going on a little longer than maybe what we thought <laughs> my voice my voice is feeling pretty good i for the audience out there i was talking to marcus earlier and a couple of weeks ago i was at a convention and and the convention was so loud and i had a table and i was talking for so long and i was trying to talk over people and the the crowd was so cool it was peoria con up in peoria illinois and it was so fun and everybody was so cool. But by the end of the day, I had lost my voice and my voice. I, I couldn't really talk for about the next week. And then 
my voice kind of came back and I've done a series of podcasts lately. And I did a podcast yesterday with some guys in England talking about Predator. And that went about two and a half hours. And then I had a, uh, an extended podcast conversation with a guy in Australia last night at like 1.30 in the morning, my time. And so by the time we got to this podcast today with you, I was like, I don't know how much I'm going to be able to talk, but I feel pretty good. I can feel my voice starting to get a little rough. Um, but uh, yeah, be careful with your voice, man, because my sister is a professional. She's classically trained uh, opera singer, and she's cautioned mm -hmm. me several times about my voice. And when she heard me doing my Batman voice on uh, my Dark Knight Returns fan film, she she said, be careful doing that. She said, don't do that anymore. <laughs> See, it's starting to catch up with me. She said, be mm -hmm. careful doing the Batman voice any more than you have to. She said, because that'll strip your vocal cords. She said, you can damage your vocal cords doing that. Um, but she's also talked to me about, you know, losing your voice. And I thought losing your voice was just like, oh, you lose your voice for a couple hours. You get it back the next day. No. Once you've stripped your vocal cords and you've damaged them, it's not. Like this is going to be a several months long process to get past. And I had no idea that it was that big of a deal. I thought, you know, laryngitis is a different thing. You get a virus, it affects your vocal cords, you lose your voice for a little while. But like actually like stripping your voice and losing your voice because of talking too loud and stressing it out, that's a serious deal. Like I can understand why like singers go on tour and they damage their vocal cords or they do something to their voice and then they have to stop singing. They have to stop the tour for a couple of months. I get it now. I get it. This has been a several weeks long process and it's still not a hundred percent there. So it was, it was kind of a, kind of a nice wake up call because I've never lost my voice before. Not like that. So anyway, that's more information than your listeners need, but for, for what it's worth, for what it's worth. Hey, Hey, yeah. <laughs> I, uh, you know, back, back in the day I used to do vocals for a heavy metal band and, oh, uh, yeah. so you know, and then, you know, later on in life, I figured out that there's actually vocal techniques I can use to help <laughs> keep my voice. And, uh, you know, I would go through years of, um, you know, I would have seasonal allergies, but I would get allergies more often than usual. So sometimes it would affect my performances and I would, uh, I would even do shows while i was sick oh and, yeah. wow yeah and uh you know it would be you know spare the moment like oh man bam i wake up the day we have to do a show and like i'm i'm sick i'm like you know i can't just back out right i have to, I yeah. have to go through with it and so i would go through some of my performances and i know that i sound like shit <laughs> but <laughs> uh I this guy, this is probably not the same thing you were doing, but I knew this guy who was in a, a death metal band and uh, in Los Angeles. And to talk to him, he was just a normal guy. He was like you or me. He was just a normal guy. And he'd get up on stage and start singing. And, rah, 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 rah. and it was just like, he, I was like, who the hell is that guy on stage? I don't know who that guy on stage is. But yeah, I don't even know if he's still doing it. We're in touch on Facebook. I need to ask him if he's still performing because... Knowing what I need to, I've got some film projects coming up, stuff I, 
and this isn't like big studio stuff. It's like there's this one big fan film project that these guys are working on, and they've raised a bunch of money, and they're going to do like five episodes of this fan series, and they've asked me to play a really cool part in this fan series. And now with all the coronavirus crap going on, it's in another big city. I'd have to travel to go do this. And now with the coronavirus, we were going to shoot it in late May. I don't know if we'll be able to shoot it in late May. We might have to push it now. But the whole point is I need to do some serious voice training before we go and do this because they want a deep, gravelly voice. It's not Batman, but they want a deep, gravelly voice and... I need to I need, I need to consult maybe with my sister, the opera singer and some other people and figure out how to to make the deeper voice come from the diaphragm and take the pressure off my vocal cords. So I need to I need to uh, I need to, to to do a little bit of work before I go do this project, because I this was a, like I said, this was really scary. This was a wake up call for me. And now and now we're talking about stuff that your fans are probably like, what the hell are these guys talking yeah. about? Like this is this is a horror. What these guys are talking about voice care. What the hell are they talking about? So anyway. What? 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 Like what? what? Really? <laughs> what? Uh yeah. But no, yeah, I mean, yeah. It is a, a serious thing to uh to work on that a lot of people don't really realize. Right, yeah. You know. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I might have to edit this out. I don't know. We'll maybe I'll just let it ride. Who okay. cares? Totally up to you. Um <laughs> and you might have to edit out this question. How are we doing running time, you think? You think we're about ready to to wrap it? Uh yeah, I mean we're we're sitting at probably about two and a half hours. Okay. So <laughs> was there anything you wanted to talk to me about in this session that we didn't hit? Um Um, I guess maybe, uh, me, I don't, I don't want to put you on the spot or anything, but, uh, you know, since, uh, we kind of talked about Stuart Gordon throughout the whole episode for the most part, what, uh, you know, I know one, one movie is, is hard to come up with, but what are some of your favorite Stuart Gordon films? You know, you asked me that, and my immediate, like, my immediate answer, my immediate instinct is to say uh, Reanimator, right off the top of my head. And I think it, it was his first film. It was his most gutsy, fun film. Um, I think there's just a lot of, there's a lot of great stuff in that film. Um, a lot of his work was really solid, but I, I think... I think uh, Reanimator would be the first film to pick. Um, and then, God, for a second film, it'd probably have to be a toss-up between From Beyond and Fortress. Um, I spoke about Space Truckers. Space, Space Truckers is a ton of fun. I really enjoyed Space Truckers. Space Truckers is kind of light and fluffy. That's kind of his light and fluffy movie. Like, instead of making Honey, I... I shrunk the kids. He ended up making space truckers instead. Space truckers is like the Disney film that Stuart Gordon didn't actually make for Disney. Um, space truckers is a lot of fun, but it's really reanimator. I think is his slickest. It's his greatest. It's his best story. It's his best screenplay. It's his tightest film. It's his most disturbing film. I think, um, and from beyond and fortress, I think run a close second for me. They're a close tie. Um, 
Fortress is a pretty successful science fiction film. Um, it's a very different film for Stuart Gordon, but I, but I think it's really good, good sort of dystopian, uh, futuristic film. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of disturbing and there's a lot of weird in From Beyond. But yeah, I got to go with Reanimator. I think his first film was his best. I think that's the film that made him. I think that's probably his film that's the most influential. So what do, what do you think? What's, what's your well, favorite? Um, you know, I'm, I'm right up there with you. Uh, Reanimator, you know, I will say Fortress is up there as well because... You know, that was the first film I ever seen from Stuart Gordon without sure. even knowing that he made the film. But, you know, after watching a lot of his films, I would I would have to agree with you. Like Reanimator is that top notch. Yeah. You know, it's a horror film, but it, it's more than a horror film. Yes. There's so many elements there. And That's a great way to put it, too. That's an excellent way to put it. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's. It's you know it's it's got some science fiction in it, um, you, you know. And I had mentioned it, it feels like a Universal monster film, modern day for eighties time. Yes, but without putting you know the Universal monster title on it. So right. you know, I thought you know there's so many so many elements there that that blend that movie together, and it just it's. It's a perfect 80s horror film. There you go. That's the soundbite right there. Yeah, it's a perfect 80s horror film. There were a lot of great horror films in the 80s, and I can start plucking them out of thin air. But yeah, it's it ranks right up there with with all of, of the other great horror films of the 80s. Yeah. I mean, and especially like the mid to late 80s when that when that video when that direct to video and video market thing happened. Right there through the mid '80s, just uh, Reanimator and Fright Night and House, and you know, just uh, I'm, not, I'm just drawing a blank on all the great horror films you that know, they were. Nightmare on Elm Street. Nightmare on Elm Street. Oh my God! Uh, Night of the Creeps. Um, just so many great horror films in that time frame. Uh, Monster Squad and just. Yeah, it, it, it was really, but no, I mean, if you have a list of horror films of the 80s, Reanimator is definitely in that top 10. And yeah, I would put it on a list of, you know, perfect horror films of the 80s. Yeah, it's definitely one of those top films. Of, of and, that. and really, and really, that's saying a lot because there was tons of great horror movies in the 80s. The 80s was like a golden age resurgence of horror films. There was probably like, the early 30s was kind of a golden age because you got Frankenstein and Dracula. And then, you know, sort of through the mid 50s, you got another wave of of horror films and the Creature from the Black Lagoon and stuff like that. But, yeah, the 80s was definitely a resurgence of, of horror films. Um, uh, slightly more adult, slightly more graphic. But, yeah, the 80s was like the second the second renaissance of, of horror films, I think. Absolutely. <laughs> Well, for sure, Wyatt. Um, man, yeah. Uh, uh, this has been an incredible interview. And, you know, I can't thank you enough for, for uh, wanting to return and and talk about, uh, you know, remembering Stuart Gordon. And, yeah. then, you know, also yeah, talking about... 
this episode is about Stuart Gordon. That's we can't forget that Stuart Gordon was the man. He was a great filmmaker. He was a good guy. Um, I, I will miss him. I will miss his films absolutely. Um, but I, this is I love doing this. This is you know the podcasting is an amazing thing because you know. Uh, when I was a kid and I wanted to make horror films and I wanted to make films, I sat around with my buddies and I talked about films. And then, you know, as an, I, as I was an adult and I started making films, I would sit around with my fellow filmmakers and make films. And now you and I get to talk about films and we get to do it online on a podcast and, and do what we love. We get to talk about films and, and let everybody else listen to our crazy ramblings and, you know, Maybe agree with yeah. us or disagree with us, but no, this is. I love doing this. I love chatting about films. Films is my films is my jam. Films is my thing. Um, but yes, all great respect due to to the late Stuart Gordon and uh, everyone. Go out and check out a Stuart Gordon film that you haven't seen before. If you if you've been interested in stuff, we I'm gonna go check out Masters of Horror. I know that I'm I from from tonight's episode. I am gonna go check out Masters of Horror. Is what I'm gonna do. So. Yeah, and I'm gonna go check out Space Truckers because I haven't there seen that go. one yet. There you go. Yeah. There you go. But yeah, uh, you know, for for late Stuart Gordon, uh, the Masters of Horror stuff is is really good, and I think he played a big part in making Masters of Horror happen. Okay. So. Um, yeah. You know, it's uh, you know I want to say it's sad to not see more of Stuart Gordon, but you know I know. He's he's still been in the film industry doing like producing and you know yes. he but as far as like directing he kind of yeah you know kind of stopped a few years back and but, I uh, don't know I don't know him his history well enough and I hadn't heard anything I hadn't heard any scuttle but um, I don't know how he did if he was smart you know he probably had some success and. With any luck, he put some money away, and he might have been union, so he might have had, uh, you know, a retirement pension. So, you know, with any luck, he was sitting back in his later years and chilling out a little bit and having a beer and drinking a, and smoking a cigar and chilling and relaxing. And, you know, hopefully in his later years, he was kicking back and, and, and enjoying, you know, what he'd done. And, you know, maybe on Saturday nights, he'd get together with a couple other filmmakers and watch one of his old movies or... You know, I'd like to think that in his later mm -hmm. years, he wasn't struggling. He was probably just kicking back and relaxing. Um, I, I'd like to think he was just chilling and enjoying his life as opposed to worrying about where his next project was. Um, I, I hope that's what was happening with him. I hope he was just kicking back and enjoying the uh, the success that he had. I hope so. I really do. Yeah, I, I'm with you, man. Yeah, I hope I hope he was he was enjoying enjoying the fruits of his labor yeah very much very much so but all right man well hey uh thank you again for coming on here and and uh discussing the horror genre again with me okay no problem and, uh, and uh hey i would love to have you back on at some point and uh let's we'll talk about something else hey we didn't get to uh lord of illusions oh yeah or, <laughs> Lord of Illusions, you know. Yeah. Um, Lord of Illusions. Maybe we get to you know. save that for another time because Lord of Illusions was fun. Clyde Barker's an awesome dude, and uh, I've got some I've got some funny Clyde Barker stories. And uh, yeah, I can talk to you about Lord of Illusions and some of the special effects, and then that led to jobs on other things and other films. Uh, Species is in there too. I get to work Ooh, on Species. yeah, 
and Species and uh, Lord of Illusions are kind of related because they were both uh, Steve Johnson special effects gigs and um, and I was tied. So uh, yeah, there's there's you know there's there's plenty of fodder there to talk about sometimes. So yeah, have me back and and bring up the topic of Lord of Illusions and I can I can do twenty minutes on Lord of Illusions. <laughs> oh man, yeah, and uh, I I totally forgot that you worked on Species. I yeah. I kind of went on a Species kick recently and watched. Uh, I think the first two. I, I I've totally... only ever seen the first two, and the first, the second one, I think it's got its rough spots, but I'm actually okay with the second one. Uh, I think I think the first one is a minor classic. The second one is it, it's okay, but I don't feel like the second one ruined the series or anything. A lot no. of second, a lot of second films, and of course we're going off on a tangent again. But no, yeah, <laughs> I'd be happy to talk about uh talk about species yeah i only i only really worked extensively on one scene on species but um i got to be involved in a little i got i got some backstory on that i know some guys who worked at steve johnson's company during that time and i got to see some of the sets and and got to see some of the stuff happening on that film so and just in terms of the director and working with the guy and 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 how quickly that film was made that that film that film got put together really quickly um, so there's there's stories there. So yeah, we could we could do a uh, a species slash uh, Lord of Illusions episode. Absolutely. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, yeah. We'll have to uh, save this for another time. Yeah, and, uh, absolutely. Give give my give my voice another couple of weeks to sort of recover, and uh, next time we'll schedule this not after two or three other podcasts, and then uh, you know then my my voice will be a little stronger at that point. So. For sure, and uh, maybe maybe we even throw in some Giver talk. As some well. Giver talk. Okay. All right. Yeah. Uh, Giver. Yeah. That's, uh, <laughs> I was back in the early days of my career when I was a fledgling wannabe filmmaker, and a lot of lessons learned, but a lot of great experiences and a lot of good stories, and just you know, man, there's nothing like film school when it's actually making movies. There's nothing like learning on the set of a low budget film it's just it's stressful and it's crazy and it's weird but it's sometimes it's so rewarding and it's so cool and yeah my my career is nothing if it's not learning how to make films on low budget films um it's i've, I've learned stuff working on low budget films that you could never learn in film school there's nothing like being in the trenches working in the heat of battle to teach you stuff. I mean, they can, they can teach you how to run a camera and they can teach you the theories of editing and they can teach you the theories of a lot of stuff in film school. But until you are in the trenches with bullets flying over your head, you really don't know what you're going to do. And, and man, I love, I love my low budget film history. I love my low budget film career. So, so yeah, maybe that's, yeah. Two, that's maybe that's two more shows. Maybe one show is just all about driver. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe we'll see. Right. Hey, we'll see. Hey, yeah, I'm for it, man. <laughs> we'll, pump out as many episodes as we can there you go there you go <laughs> yeah well hey man hey thank you so much for, for coming on the show you're welcome i'm willing to come back anytime uh thank you everybody out there for listening um i'm gonna take my raspy voice and i'm gonna go sign off and uh marcus thank you for having me on hey hey no problem and stay safe during these times i know absolutely this is, uh, this is this is great for a filmmaker because I get to stay home and I get to edit projects I've never gotten to work on, 
and I get to write scripts that I've been wanting to write that I haven't had the time for. So I'm utilizing this time. I'm utilizing this time to do all this creative stuff and do podcasts with guys like you. A lot of times I, I don't have time to do the podcast or I have to schedule the podcast here and there. But lately it's like people have been contacting me. Hey man, can you do a podcast? I'm like, absolutely. I have nothing else going on. So I'm being creative and I'm going for walks late at night because nobody's out there. And then I'm having, I'm doing podcasts. So so other than not working and making money, it's been awesome. It's really been awesome. So, but yeah, you, you stay safe too, okay? All right. Hey, thank you so much, man. All right. Wow. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed this two-part episode in remembrance of Stuart Gordon. And uh, big thanks to White Weed for coming on and sharing some of his stories and and uh, talking about Stuart Gordon's films. And then, you know, also we talked more than just his films. So um, it's always a blast having you on the show, Wyatt. So uh, thank you. And I look forward to uh, having more episodes with you on there. So um with that said, um, check out his film company, Pirate Pictures, at piratepictures.net. You can find some more info on some of the other movies that he's worked on. And um, and then if you even have some work that need to be done as far as uh, uh, film needs, you know, if you're working on a film, they have uh, plenty of... Uh, uh, different areas, uh, departments where you can get stuff worked on, um, like editing, um, special effects, uh, stuff like that that can be added to your films. And just go check out his website at piratepictures.net. You can find more info on, on what they all do. And um, I just wanted to mention uh, Midwest Monster Fest. We'll be here September 5th and 6th. Um, they just announced a new guest, Tamara Glenn. You might know her from Halloween 5. And she's also going to be in Terrifier 2. So that's something to look forward to. Um, some of the other guests that have been previously announced. CJ Graham, Tom Matthews, Linnea Quigley, Mark Price, Nathan Basil and JJ Cohen so far. And, uh, there's going to be more guests to be announced. So stay tuned, check them out at MidwestMonsterFest.com, or you can find them on Facebook and Instagram mid Midwest monster fest. Um, yeah. So just, uh, again, big thanks to Wyatt weed for coming on the show. It was amazing. It's always a blast. And that about wraps it up for me. Um, you can find us at Root Horror Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. You can also send me an email at roothorror at gmail.com for, for whatever. <laughs> for feedback, uh, to be a guest on the show, whatever. Tell me that I suck. No, <laughs> well, I don't care. Just, yeah. The email is there if you if you want to reach out to me. Um, yeah, uh, I you know I can't really tell you 
what the next episode is going to be. Uh, I have a few guests lined up. It just uh, it all depends on uh, everybody's schedule and um, you know with this pandemic going on, who knows what's going to happen. So just stay tuned. I'm sure I'll be putting up a another kick-ass episode and if you guys haven't listened to all my stuff you can go back and listen to uh some of my spiels about certain movies and uh previous guests i've had on the show there's some some pretty good interviews in there so that about wraps it up guys uh, enjoy and be safe out there with this coronavirus crap going on i'm sure everyone's tired of hearing about it but it's uh pretty serious so just take care of you guys you know take care of you guys selves and uh look forward to uh pumping out another episode for you guys take care guys you have been listening to the rude horror podcast if you like this content and would like to hear future episodes Please follow or subscribe if you dare.